0: Hey everybody! Welcome back to Gen Z Diaries with your host Cade Franks. Uh, tonight we have a very, very special guest, um, John. Why don't you just introduce yourself? Tell tell everybody who you are, what you what your life has work has been, and uh, where you are in life right now.
1: Well, uh, thanks for inviting me, Cade. Um, my name is John Dingus. Uh, I'm a journalist. I've spent most of my career writing about Latin America. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. I worked at the Washington Post uh, for a number of years. Then I was at NPR as um, a foreign editor, and then I was managing editor and editorial director. Uh, And then for the last 20 years of my professional life, I was a professor of journalism at uh, Columbia University. Um, And uh, now I'm a retired uh, writer, I guess, or I guess I'm I'm a writer who is retired from other remunerative activities. (laughs) So uh, if you're a writer, uh, it just means that you have more time and less money uh, to do (laughs) what you used to like to do. So I continue to write about uh, the period that I'm kind of an expert on um, from personal experience and then a lot of investigative research. uh, And that's the dictatorships in the southern cone of South America in the 1970s. Um, and, um, that's, that's, I've done, I've done a lot of work on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, I want to even go back to the very beginning of your story. Whenever I, um, started looking into who you were, some of the work that you have done in your life, I noticed actually that you started out, um, thinking that you wanted to be a priest.
1: Uh, that's right. I, um,
0: tell me more about that. I'm very interested in that.
1: I, I went to a Small, I'm from Iowa, and um, I went to a Midwest, to a college in uh, Dubuque, Iowa, Catholic College, and um, studied philosophy and a major in English, uh, but with the intention of going on to the seminary. Uh, And luckily, uh, uh, I mean, it was a tremendous privilege. They decided that I was a a smart guy, I guess, and uh, I should be sent to Europe to study. So they basically gave me an opportunity um, to study in Innsbruck, Austria, which is the center of uh, Vatican II uh, progressive uh, theology in the Catholic Church. And um, Mm -hmm. it was a great experience. And I learned German. Um, I already knew Spanish a little bit, not not that much. Uh, So I lived in Europe for three years. And then... um, Decided that wasn't a life for me. Um, although I've always said that there's a tremendous amount in common uh, between the values of of a um, clergyman, somebody dedicated to religion, and uh, somebody who works in journalism. We're pretty much all idealists. Uh, we're trying to make the world better. And uh, that certainly, certainly wasn't difficult for me uh, to make that transition. In fact, when I got into journalism... A couple of years after I left the seminary, uh, I was I said I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I was so happy in this new <laughs> profession. Uh, we just, I just loved it. Um, I came into it by accident, uh, in a sense, because I was looking for a job. Uh, not particularly trained for anything, since I didn't want to continue on in, in uh, any work involving the church. And uh, so I applied for a job. Somebody told me, because you were a seminarian, uh, I think it was my brother-in-law, those of you who have brother-in-laws, you'll relate to this, because if they're older, married to your older sister, they feel free uh, to give you advice on your life. And he said, well, you were in the seminary, so you must be good at dealing with people. (laughs) Not necessarily right, but uh, so why don't you apply for uh, uh, in the personnel department in a company? Get a good company job. And, um, well, I did. I, I wrote to, uh, I, I looked in the newspaper and saw a job in the personnel department at the Des Moines Register. One of the, at that time, the best paper in Iowa. And uh, But I also, luckily, in, included in my letter, you know, I'm applying for this job. I need a job. But really what I'd like to do is work uh, as a reporter. I'd like to work as a journalist, even though I have absolutely no experience. And uh, I guess they thought because I was an English major and I I'd, I'd participated in editing and translating a, uh, a book that we published um, in Innsbruck about faith. And um, it had been published. So for some one reason or another, they offered me a training job. Uh, come in for a tryout and uh, we'll see if we can make you into a journalist. Uh, and they did. They, uh, they trained me on the job. And. Um, I loved every minute of it. It was, it was really wonderful. And the rest of my life has been, uh, working in journalism. I've never yeah. had a bor- never had a boring day in my life.
0: Yeah. So, so started as a path of faith and then you took a leap of faith and then you somehow ended up down in Chile.
1: So yes, I had, I had spent two years, I spent two years in that, uh, you know, in that job at, uh, in Des Moines. Uh, I was on the copy desk, uh, and, uh, and, then, and they were really good. I said, I want to be a reporter. They said, good, we'll make you a police reporter. Uh, so I was sent to the police station every morning at 6.30 in the morning, had to file four or five stories by 10 or 10.30 in the morning. It was really great training. Uh, by the end of two years, I thought, hey, I, I got this journalism stuff down. Uh, I'm not going to wait around for another four or five years or 10 years for them to send me maybe to Washington. Maybe eventually I'll get a job as a foreign correspondent. I'll just go to South America because I knew Spanish and um, I'll become a freelance correspondent. How how old were you at this time? uh, I was not all that young. I was uh, when I started journalism, I was. 28 years old. Okay. And uh, I'd been in it two years and, and I, I went to Stanford University, got a degree in Latin American studies on the theory that if you're going to go write about a continent, you might as well know something about it.
0: So, so, so before you went there, myself, before you went there, you knew you were going to go and then you got the degree.
1: Oh, yes. Okay. I, I, that was my idea to go to, Uh, I'd gone down to Mexico, uh, on my vacation. One of my projects was to start an English language newspaper in, uh, Guadalajara. Um, I went down there on my vacation discovered there already was an English language newspaper. Uh, you you have to understand there was a world before internet. So you (laughs) didn't necessarily know instantaneously everything that was happening. Uh, but I loved Latin America and, um, And so I, I had this project that I would go, but I had to find out, I had to choose where to go. Um, and of course, journalistically the best story, really one of the best stories anywhere, uh, in the world was the revolution that was going on in Chile in 19, uh, in the 1970s. Uh, there was a, uh, socialist, uh, who, who actually was a uh, who avowed Marxist, uh, who had been elected as president of Chile, together with a coalition of uh, parties that included the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, um, and a couple of Christian leftist parties. Uh, really a, a, an amazing experiment. They won the election democratically, unquestionably a fair election. Um, And they began to try to implement uh, social change, poverty programs, uh, workers' programs. And um, so it was a great story. Of course, the United States was very opposed to this. And that was the dynamic tension in the story that everybody knew the United States would like to get rid of this government. Um, And so I went down there to get to jump into the middle of that story.
0: So was that, at that point, was that Salvador Allende?
1: Yes, Salvador Allende.
0: He was the he president was, at the time?
1: He had been a senator. Um, uh, he was a medical doctor by profession. And um, a one of these old-fashioned, total gentleman-like people, very elegantly dressed. Um, and uh, you would never look at the guy and say, you know, this is a rabble-rousing socialist. Right. Um, I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders looks like an absolute radical compared to uh, Salvador Allende. Um, (laughs) Salvador Allende looked more like, um, um, I I guess a little bit like John Kennedy, uh, because he was such such a good speaker, and uh, he had a sense of elegance about him. Uh, yeah. so very popular reader, uh, a, a very popular leader, uh, in the midst of an experiment to try to, um, do everything to,
0: oh.
1: you know, revolutionize you the country. There we go. Yeah.
0: There's a, there's a picture of Salvador.
1: Yeah. I, I don't want to say that I, looking at the picture, he's got that elegance. I don't know if John F. <laughs> Kennedy, uh, is really what would come to mind. I <laughs> you can think of another example of well, uh, who he looks like, but he was a great guy. He was a yeah. wonderful leader.
0: Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So you're down, you're down in Chile. When are you down there? When, um, general Pinochet? were you down there before he comes into power?
1: Yes. I, okay. I got there in 1972 and, um, I was there for approximately 11 months uh, and then the coup hit. And of course the coup changed my life much more than the months that I'd lived during the revolution. And uh, I had a great time. Uh, All of us, there were a group of Americans down there um, and uh, leftists, all of them. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for all of them, but, Definitely there were people who had gone down there to participate in the in this experiment. They were just fascinated by it. a lot of young people, uh, students, young academics. Uh, it was so, a very exciting environment.
0: Sorry to interrupt you That's right. um, when you say uh, two things um, when you well, when you say leftist, uh, just for everybody, what politically what does a leftist stand for in this in this situation?
1: Um, that's a good question, because uh, in the United States, uh, we tend to think of the Democratic Party as leftist. Right. Uh, That's simply in contrast to the other party, particularly now, which is right now the Republican Party is quite far right. Um, Democratic Party in Latin America would not really be considered a leftist party. Uh, A leftist party would have to be uh, in in fact, would be a party that uh, has socialist goals, meaning the a very um, a project to run uh, the economy uh, for the benefit of the people, rather than for the benefit of the business class. So socialism is in in their way of, of thinking. Um, is reconfiguring the economy uh, so that the en- so that the engine of uh, equality and and prosperity for pretty much everybody in the country uh, is is the economy, not the other way around. Not that the economy serves uh, the people that own the businesses, and they give employment, and 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 we hope that the employment gives wages that are high enough so that people can have a good life. They kind of look at it the other way around. So that's, that's the leftist agenda that was very uh, very much uh, the agenda of the, again, the government. Now, I, I don't want to underplay the radical nature of this. Um, together with this was the theory of social change, which involved... Um, the background of the Cuban revolution, which had come to power through uh, a guerrilla warfare. Mm. And the 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 unique thing about, and, and the people in Chile very much identified with what was happening in Cuba, uh, the social change that was being implemented in, in Cuba. But the unique thing about the Allende revolution was that it was democratic. So this was really the first time ever in in my experience where you had an elected government that really was serious about respecting uh, parliament, free elections, uh, a a very free press uh, and trying to accomplish what other uh, countries had tried to do with with guerrilla armies. So it was a very unique experiment.
0: That, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Um, So uh, you can feel, f- feel free to correct me at any point if I get any yeah. of this wrong, obviously uh, that goes without saying, but Allende comes into office and then at a certain point, um, he decides to appoint general Pinochet as his. No, 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 no.
1: no. General Pinochet. All Pinoche, right, great. Here we go. General Pinochet <laughs> does not, is not appointed um he was the leader of a violent overthrow of the socialist government
0: okay that's, so i that's
1: you know, how he came into power uh and you know from the very first day okay uh, this military coup involved mass killings so so that's no, crazy
0: do whatever i looked up it said that he got appointed to the position and then 18 days later staged the coup to take over so oh okay i'm
1: sorry i i wasn't uh i i i should have uh asked more carefully yes he was uh he was a general in the chilean army um, okay okay and at uh he becomes uh he bec- he is promoted to be commander-in-chief of the army um, because the previous commander-in-chief of the army stepped down under pressure. So, yes, in that sense, uh, the the government uh, named him to be in that military position. Right. And, yes, about 18 days later, he turns around and he was thought to be loyal to the government. Really? Uh, uh, I guess he kept his cards pretty close to the chest. And uh, turned around and led the coup.
0: That's so. That's so fascinating that you can be that close to the president of the government, and it's still like kind of keep it under wraps. Or, or well, I guess I could ask you um, during this time in Chile, was there something in the air? Did did something? Did did? Could you feel that something weird was going on?
1: Absolutely. Um, there was a lot of talk uh, that the. Um, that there might be a military coup. I mean, this is Latin America. Uh, there had been, I think I, one time I actually counted them up and, um, there've been more than a hundred military coups in Latin America. Wow. Uh, not, not all of them this violent by any means, but it's very, it was very common, not in Chile, but in other countries, uh, particularly in Central America. Um, and, um, Brazil had had a military coup in 1964. Um, uh, Paraguay had had a military coup in 1958, 50, uh, 54 maybe, um, and the guy who had who had led that military coup was still in power in the 1970s. Um, Guatemala, there had been a military coup. That one was backed by the United States. Uh, Dominican Republic, where there had been an invasion by the United States uh, of uh, the Dominican Republic because the United States didn't like the the president and uh, wanted to prevent him from um, coming to office. So yeah. it was very common, um, but uh, this was different. Uh, this began a period in which uh, the Military coup was not simply to overthrow one government and install another government. Uh, In this case, uh, the military stayed in power uh, for 17 years, uh, and they uh, really introduced a system of mass repression that had not been seen, certainly not in the big countries of South America uh, ever. Um, And with secret police system, institutionalized um, surveillance of all aspects Mm -hmm. of life, um, torture, uh, and uh, a new phenomenon of uh, disappearance. So not only do you kill your opponents, but you dump their bodies in the ocean so that nobody ever sees them, and you deny... That that person had ever been in your custody, yeah. so it was it was a horrendous period, and it occurred. And it was not just Chile. At this point, uh, nineteen seventy three is really the beginning of a ten year period, which I call the Condor Years, uh, because there were uh, six countries who were in military rule at this time. And they created an alliance so that they could implement these programs of repression across each other's borders. They would operate in each other's countries. Um, they would track down the exiles, people who had fled from one country to another, uh, grab them, and in many, many cases, um, kill them using the same method that right. they done in Chile and um, This system of secret prisons, torture and disappearance um, was really unique in in Latin America and has not been repeated since.
0: Yeah. And the fascinating part about it, too, is that all of these governments were cooperating with each other and letting each other come into their own territories and perform these operations and disappear people and torture people um, on different lands, you know? And so, um, that's, that's, that's crazy. And that's, uh, that's what your book is about operation condor, but I kind of want to go back to what is, I mean, what is it like at the start of the coup in Chile? Where are you at? What are you doing? Um, yeah, like, I think that's so fascinating because that's got, that has to be, Just such an intense situation to be around.
1: Well, I was. um, I had. Been in Chile for. um, 10 months. And my I had a grant to. um, File stories for the Inter-American Press Association. And that had run out. uh, But I decided I wanted to stay on. So. I didn't want to return to the united states i didn't have a job i had a girlfriend in chile so hey why not stay and uh things were bad they were tense this was before the coup uh but i thought you know i like i really love this place i, I really mm. want to stay here and um yeah so i got a job um as an english teacher your your typical gringo in a foreign <laughs> country. Yeah, that's a job that's always available to you if you're halfway literature literate, and um, so I got a job at a English school called the Grange, and luckily that when the coup happened, I was already teaching classes, uh, high school classes, and that protected me. So uh, if I was ever, I mean, my house was raided four times um and my explanation was you know i'm teaching school at uh, the grange and even the cops knew that the grange was this very conservative uh, upper class school mm-hmm. and so they that allayed their suspicion of this gringo who's down there um uh, living in this house so it was um the first few days were um, full of terror. Uh, we didn't know what was happening. We could hear every night. You would hear um, gunfire. Uh, somebody in the neighborhood shot a shot, a, probably a pistol, against our uh, our house. So there was a bullet hole in the wall. Uh, we never knew who, who that was. Right. Um, a friend of mine who lived in the house, it was a group house. There were eight of us who lived in this house in a middle-class neighborhood. Um, my friend, who was a Chilean, uh, named Alcibiades, um, he returned to his school. He was studying economics. And he returned, uh, as a graduate student, and he returned to his school the first day after the coup, and um, it was a trap. They, they had set up uh, a military uh, raid so that as soon as the students all gathered together at this school to start their classes again, uh, they swooped in and took a whole bunch of them prison, uh, prisoner. Mm. Uh, that's the way things were operating because it was considered to be a, a leftist school. Uh, so my friend was held, um, uh, interrogated. Uh, I don't believe he was tortured. He was, you know, pushed around and things like that. But then they decided, well, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing we're going to hold this guy for. So it was a, it was a curfew from six o'clock in the morning, in the six o'clock in the evening until five o'clock in the morning. At midnight, they kick him out in the street in the middle of curfew, uh, Three or four miles from our house, basically almost a death sentence because Mm. they were shooting people who were out after curfew. So he made his way jumping in and out of doorways, avoiding the patrols, uh, and he didn't make it to our house until five o'clock in the morning. And he jumped over the gate and banged on the door.
0: So that's kind of like a here's your freedom if you can make it moment.
1: Exactly, right yeah. and they were doing there one of the ways that <clears throat> even in the paper um, there would be stories for, for example the the head of the civilian police under Allende uh, his name was um, Eduardo Paredes they called him Coco uh, the the right uh, hated him because they considered him to be the head of the poli- political uh, political police mm-hmm. in other words like the FBI. Uh, they thought he was spying on them. Maybe he was, right? Uh, two days after the coup, a story comes out in the paper saying that Mr. Paredes, the former head of the uh, the investigative police, um, had gotten together with four of his officers and had c- gathered up guns and had were trying to flee and and were' attacking the police and they killed them all well of course that's not what happened but they 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 would when they executed somebody in those early days they would announce that they had been killed while fleeing or killed while attacking the police mm. so if you're out after curfew that in many cases, was the pretext that they would give for somebody that was dead. They would say, "Well, he went out after curfew yeah, and he through was through killed." Years. They yeah. would say the leftists killed him. The leftist extremists killed mm-hmm. him because they they invented this idea that the leftist extremists were roaming at night shooting at people. So it was a, you, a, a really, really a terrific, a terrible situation.
0: Do you think they were? Hmm. So do you think that the curfew um, was so effective because they knew that people who actually were against this new government uh, would be doing stuff mainly at night? Or do you think? No, no, no.
1: Nobody was doing anything. Uh, So they
0: were forced, they were just like going around and hurting them up basically and saying, yeah, we caught them outside.
1: They were using the curfew because in curfew, everybody had to be in their homes. Or you you couldn't be on the street. So they would then go around and raid houses. Oh, man. uh, And hope, you know, in the expectation that they would find uh, people at home. Now, another example, if I can go on about this. Go for it. There were two Americans um, who were uh, caught up in this um, and were detained at their houses separately. They actually knew each other, and I knew both of them. Um, uh, They were detained at their houses. They were taken to the National Stadium. It's a big soccer stadium. Uh, And both of them were executed. And then they dumped their bodies on the street. Um, And so they would say, well, we didn't have them in custody. They were killed by the left. Oh, man. Uh, and this, there was a famous movie made about this called "Missing," who's um, Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek uh, in the '80s, and the the, the movie was about this uh, this American who was killed after the military coup. And I'm actually writing a book about that now.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. That's just that's so sad. Just everything that went on during that time and all of the abuses of power and uh just how how quickly things can turn from someone who is democratically elected to someone completely taking over the government in the queue and committing mass murder
1: yep that uh wasn't what i expected to find when i went down there that's for sure
0: no no so i'm assuming kind of at this point is when your journalistic um, <laughs> process kind of started.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, I had I had written some stories, uh, during the Ayenda government, um, which had very little impact on anybody. Um, feature stories, and so at the time of the coup, I wasn't writing stories at all, and I would not have been able to stay in Chile if I had been writing for a publication because they, mm. they, they were the, the foreign correspondents were personas non grata. Uh, you could get away with coming in and writing a couple stories and then you would leave the pub- stories would be published and they would put you on a blacklist so that you couldn't come back into Chile. Mm. Um, so I basically, I really kept my head low for a while, um, for about a year, <clears throat> and in early 1975, I started writing again, and I got a job with uh, Time Magazine uh, to be their stringer, fifty dollars a day. Um, when I was working for them, that was that was that was good money for me.
0: What do you mean and, by stringer?
1: Okay, Stringer is a freelance journalist who works um, on a kind of informal contract or agreement with a particular publication. uh, So that when Time Magazine wanted to do something in Chile, they would call me. Uh, There was a full-time, very well-paid correspondent who lived in Buenos Aires in Argentina, and he was my boss. So he and I would communicate by telex which is this old system of, of very much like the internet where you were very much like um, text messaging only mm-hmm. it was over phone lines on these, on these great big machines. And, and we would, we would arrange, I would tell him when there's a story developing that he might want to come over for from Argentina, uh, or I would uh, send him uh, what we called files, say 500, 700 words of here's what's happening. Um, not necessarily for publication. um, Or, for example, he was working on a story about, say, um, business developments in this part of Latin America. And he would send me a few questions, and he would say, what's going on with the copper industry in Chile? Because that's the main industry. And I would do some research, I would answer the questions and he would use that in the story that they were doing in Time magazine
0: so -hmm. that's
1: the way it worked with Time and with the Washington, then I quickly got on a a string we call it a string uh, with the Washington Post Uh, and uh, with the Post I was doing uh, my own Mm -hmm. stories, I was writing, pitching the story, writing the story from beginning to end, but because I was writing about human rights and all these atrocities, I wasn't able to sign. I wasn't able to put my name on the stories. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so until the end of 1976, I was filing stories for the Washington Post um, without my name. Um, and these were the some of the best stories I ever did because they were... Uh, about the same things that we were talking about earlier, about the phenomenon of disappearance, um, about the torture camps, uh, about the secret repression that was going on in the country. All of that I was investigating using uh, my contacts with the human rights organization sponsored by the church. Um, And um, I got away with it until the end of 1976. Um, and, um, but I wanted to make a name for myself. I mean, as a journalist, if your name is not on your stories, uh, nobody knows who you are. And so I said, if I'm going to go anywhere in this business, I have to start writing with my name. So I started to put my name on the stories and within two months, um, they, they, uh, detained me. Took me down to the police station. Luckily, it was not the secret police, and they read a decree to me saying that I was being <clears throat> I was being expelled from the country. Uh, and I said, "Why?" And they said, "Well, there's in this decree, there's three possible reasons: um, you're a homosexual, you're a drug trafficker, or you're a Marxist." Huh. And I said. I said, okay, I'll take the third one. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I didn't do that, but that's the way that's, I always tell the story. That's
0: funny. That's funny.
1: So I did. I actually ended up not being kicked out of the country um, because Jimmy Carter, it was the same month that Jimmy Carter had come to office, the President Carter, who was – Uh, introducing a very energetic program of defense of human rights. So the U S policy had gone from defense of the dictatorship to defense of human rights. Uh, And so the ambassador protested that they were trying to kick me out. And they said to the military government, "Um, you're just like the Soviets. The Soviets had just kicked out a correspondent for the associated press. And, um, and so, why are you kicking out this this journalist from Chile? You're just like, and they rescinded it. They let me stay for another year. So I stayed mm. for another year. Um, at that point, I was uh, married, and uh, we had a child in 1977. Um, and in 1978, I um, I finally came back to Washington to work at the Post.
0: Mm, interesting interesting so when did when uh why don't you uh give everybody a brief rundown of like what exactly operation Condor was I know we've touched briefly on some of the um, characteristics of it all but uh what what operation Condor is how you became um, interested in investigating it where that process started um yeah just just give the brief rundown sure first.
1: sure I was the first writer to write about Operation Condor. Um, and it was because um, in, 19, in September 1976, there was a car bombing in Washington, D.C., in which the former Chilean ambassador, who had been the foreign minister and the defense minister in Chile, was killed uh, mm-hmm. when his car blew up on Sheridan Circle in here in Washington. I drive by it almost every day. Uh, that assassination was carried out by Chile. Of course, they denied it at the time, but the FBI investigated it, and in the course of the investigation, discovered that part of that operation was um, carried out with the assistance of this alliance of the other countries, uh, and they were. And it was the FBI that revealed the existence of this alliance, which was called Operation Condor. And so because I was, at this point, um, I I covered the assassination from Chile, writing background stories, and then uh, the FBI investigation was successful. And in early 1978, uh, they began to make public their findings and by public, I mean, they sent two FBI agents and an assistant attorney, ass- assistant U.S. attorney, down to Chile to uh, ask for the arrest of three military officers. Uh, they had pictures. They had they had the goods on them. Uh, turns out that one of the assassins was an American citizen, a man named Michael Townley. Um, so that story... I was still there, and I was writing that story for weeks. I wrote many, many stories, and I became, at this point, I'm using my own name. So I'm now identified with a very important story, journalistically. Uh, So Operation Condor was one of the first, not, I discovered it because of its role in the assassination of Orlando Letelier, I had developed sources in the FBI who were willing to talk to me about this. In fact, the man who discovered it, who discovered Operation Condor, um, at one point in our many conversations, he read to me over the phone his original cable in which he informed the FBI of the existence of this Operation Condor. And for a long time, that was all we knew about it. In this cable, uh, this agent, whose name is Robert Scherer, uh, describes uh, three layers, three phases. Uh, It's intelligence collection by all of the countries, six countries, uh, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia, and Paraguay. Uh, Later, Peru and Ecuador also joined. So intelligence coordination with a data bank on leftist subversives all over Latin America, right? Joint operations inside each other's countries. So the Chileans could send a team of secret policemen to Argentina, where most of this happened, uh, with the names of people that they... Wanted to arrest, and in many cases they would they would detain people and then they would secretly take them back to Chile, where they were killed. Uh, and the third layer of Operation Condor, the third phase, was assassination operations planned for Europe, planned for outside of Latin America. So the L'Etelier case was described in this cable as. A possible Phase Three Operation Condor uh, action. Hmm. So that's that's how I got into this, and I and I, I wrote a book about the Latelier assassination um, in night. It was published in 1980, and in that book, I have a section uh, in one of the chapters about Operation Condor, and that was the first time um, anybody had written anything of any length in a book about Operation Condor Mm. Um, and very little was known about it. I mean, pretty much what I knew about it from these cables and my conversations was the most that was known um, about this amazing, uh, horrific, uh, we call it now transnational repression. Right. Um, And then many years later, uh, the United States began to declassify documents about the assassination of Latellier and Operation Condor, and that's why I began to write my uh, my other book. I'd written another book in the meantime about Panama, and then this was my book uh, that I began in 1999, uh, based because I knew that these documents were coming out, and I would be able to understand them because I knew all the background. Mm, okay, okay.
0: To what? Is there any evidence that shows to what extent the United States had knowledge or involvement in Operation Condor?
1: Sure. Um, That is one of the main things that I'm trying to explain and to explain it in the most objective and factually confirmed way, because the United States has been involved in so many scurrilous Operations in third world countries. That there's almost an instinct that you see among people, particularly on the left, but not just people on the left, who say, "Well, if something really bad happens, uh, it must. The United States must be involved." You know, when when the economy uh, starts to be in trouble, and it's a if it's a progressive government well, the United States must be screwing up the economy in order to make that government fail. So there's, there's, um, and military there, we had, for example, there, it was documented that the United States had been involved in the coup in Guatemala, the invasion of Dominican Republic. We were involved with the coup in Brazil and we, um, we were involved in a earlier coup in Chile in 1970, that was unsuccessful. So everybody assumed, uh, pretty much everybody, that we must have been involved directly in the coup in Chile um, in 1973, and that undoubtedly we had been the architects of Operation Condor. Well, of that list of... of. Uh, Crimes and misdemeanors. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting a call in here. Oh, no, that's okay. I can't, I don't want to take it. Um, I'm sure it'll go away in a minute. Um, Are you hearing the phone?
0: No, it it doesn't seem to affect anything. Okay,
1: good. Okay. Uh, So the United States was assumed to be involved in all this list. They were involved with about 80% of those things that I described. Mm. But the two things uh, at the la- end of the list, the coup in 1973 and Operation Condor, their role was indirect. In other words, they knew about it. They were complicitous in the sense that they didn't do anything to stop it. Uh, in fact, they defended what the governments were doing in the South in South America. Uh, against international criticism on human rights grounds. So during the Nixon-Ford administration, we were on the side uh, of the dictators who were conducting these operations, these murderous operations. But we weren't directly involved. Um, And that's an important distinction. It's complicity, but it's not direct. It's not direct involvement.
0: Right. But even even if the United States had decided to become more involved, I mean, that, that looks like some sort of um, physical interaction, you know, between the United States and Chile. I mean, uh, you would have to involve some form of intelligence operation or, you know what I'm saying? Like you would actually have to do some form of formal military yeah. operation if you wanted to be involved in that. And maybe at the time the United States was just like, we don't want to really take that formal of a stance. We want to let them sort of sort things out rather than take such a direct stand.
1: I mean, and we didn't need to take a direct, to have a direct role. Um, The, the other element of this is that these military dictatorships um, were beyond the pale as far as the United States was concerned, when they started at a certain point to project their assassination plans beyond Latin America, so into the European realm, into the European, they there were plans for assassinations in um, specifically that they discovered in uh, Paris and in Lisbon, Lisbon, um, and uh, now I know that they had detected. Uh, I think it's 20 separate operations uh, to conduct these operations in Europe. When the CIA discovered that, uh, there was a big kerfuffle inside the U.S. government about, should we do something about this? Can we permit that they do assassinations in Europe? This is before the assassination occurred here in Washington, D.C. Okay, And Kissinger's decision was that we have to, uh, he, he was convinced to come out against this. And so a, uh, a what they call a demarche, uh, a warning was crafted. And the ambassadors of those six countries were instructed to tell the head of state or whoever they could get to that we don't agree with these. We know about your plans. We don't agree with them. Stop them. Unfortunately, uh, that was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, Kissinger uh, waffled and didn't want to uh, appease, didn't want to offend uh, people like Pinochet. Uh, and he was told, well, maybe these plans are not really going to happen. And so he canceled the warning. And four days later, Letellier is killed in Washington, D.C. Uh, so it was. It was a horrible intelligence failure that we could have prevented this uh, and we didn't do anything about it.
0: And Letellier was essentially the main proponent against Pinochet at the time, correct? Yes. Main political ally or ally, sorry, main political opposition.
1: (laughs) He was very important in the United States and he was very important in Europe. Uh, He was traveling frequently to Europe to organize the opposition to the dictatorships. And there was a lot of opposition in the European countries and in the United States um, to the dictatorships. Uh, we had important senators, Senator Kennedy, um, uh, Tom Harkin, who at that time was not a senator, he was a member of the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. uh, Representative Fraser, uh, a good group of um, of senators and representatives were organized and supporting the opposition to the dictatorships, and were, you know, causing they were they cut off military aid to uh, Chile and um, and Uruguay. Uh, they were making a difference. They were raising human rights as a value in in uh, in U.S. policy. This really is the time when human rights becomes an institutional part of u.s foreign policy
0: Hmm. that's fascinating i'm in an international law class right now actually so we talk a lot about um just international policy and how how the countries interact with each other and so that's interesting to hear this side of it all and how it actually worked out in the real world um so this intercooperations going along in between all of the Latin American countries, there's assassinations happening. There's people being disappeared, um, for essentially just the purpose of being political opposition to these new government, newly installed governments in Latin America at the time. Um, after Latelier is assassinated, I'm, I'm assuming that's kind of when the domino started to fall.
1: You're right. Uh, the- the the uh, the killing didn't stop, uh, but internationally, things it was a tipping point. Uh, uh, in the United States, we no longer well. It was also the coming of Jimmy Carter to uh, the presidency, uh, and he was an advocate for human rights. Uh, but the public scandal of the Latelier, uh killing. An un-American woman, Ronnie Moffat, was killed with him mm-hmm. uh, in the car. This had a tremendous effect in turning public opinion against the, the dictatorships. A lot of people are kind of instinctually anti-communist in the United States, and so they had that going for them. Uh, when they conducted a international terrorist attack, on the streets of Washington D.C., a lot of people said, "Huh, I don't think that that's the uh, I don't think that's the communists doing that. I think that's the uh, these dictatorships." And so, uh, public opinion was was on the side of the many many people who were uh, trying to restore democracy in in South America. Mm.
0: Interesting. So then the U.S. did the U.S. take an official position after um, that assassination in Washington, D.C.?
1: Well, the important thing is that the United States government, the Department of Justice, ordered a vigorous investigation. Okay. Uh, this and this is important I mean, this in the context of today where the Department of Justice is in the midst of controversy. Um, it was the Republican administration of Gerald President Ford uh, who ordered the investigation. And it was not a cover-up investigation. It was an, a true, vigorous, and ultimately successful investigation that found the evidence that connected Pinochet and his people to this murder. Uh, so it was a Republican administration that started this. And at that time, the FBI was known to be quite conservative and anti-communist. And I had very interesting uh, encounters with FBI agents who would talk about this, how we, you know, we um, in the FBI, we have been fighting communism. And now all of a sudden we find that we are investigating a murder committed by the anti-communists by the mm-hmm. people that have made anti-communism into a uh, a religion, into a, a radical movement, a radical violent movement. Uh, it was eye-opening to them in the FBI, uh, and 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 I think it was part of the evolution within the U.S. government away from the 1960s um, FBI, which which was led by J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, where the FBI was very much identified with uh, with the right wing, uh, it was it made uh, the, the the Latelier murder was the most. It was unique in American history. In turn, it was an international assassination, an international terrorist attack mm-hmm. in Washington D.C., which. The only comparable uh, terrorist act is 9-11 in, in, in New York and the attack on the Pentagon. Of course, right. the proportions are not the same. Um, two people were killed in the terrorist attack on L'Atelier, uh, and obviously thousands were killed in 9-11. But these were attacks uh, on the United States by a foreign uh, by foreign terrorists. In the right. case of Chile, it was the government itself, which had been, which was an ally of the United States, and then of course in nine eleven, um, it was the terrorist Al Qaeda. But I, you know, it's it's almost too outrageous to talk about. But the days are the same. The name, the day of the military coup in Chile was. 9-11-1973 and the wow. terrorist attack in new york was 9-11-2001
0: you know what's weird about <clears> that, <throat> that is there's other i've actually i can't think of any off the top of my head and i wish i had a little assistant to search for me uh but unfortunately i don't but there's other major events that have happened along this nine eleven timeline so it's strange it's strange to say the least um Oh man, where, where, where was I going to go with this? Um, do you think this, I guess this would be more of a speculative question. Um, but do you think that the United States had any future intentions sort of to try and instill, uh, Orlando Letelier back into some seat of power in Chile?
1: No, that, that was never part of us policy. Um, I mean, he, Letellier actually was had access to the US government, uh, not only among the Congress people and senators who were in favor of human rights, he had had a lunch with Henry Kissinger a few months mm-hmm. before he was killed. So he was, he had access at a very high level. Uh, I think he would have been a candidate if he had not been killed. Uh, I don't think the United States would have been involved in supporting him or anything like that. But they certainly he was highly respected, uh, even among people in the uh, in the U.S. government uh, during a during the Republican administration. Um, And, you know, one of the purposes of Operation Condor was precisely that to get rid of the most important exiles who would be that would be who would be the leaders of a democratic uh, government that would replace the military. So it wasn't by accident. Um, uh, He was one of uh, a number of leaders. Uh, There were two important leaders from uh, Uruguay who were killed. One was a senator, one was a representative, both of them. And a third person who survived was not killed, but was targeted. Um, they hmm. would have been the heart of the restoration of democracy. Uh, so you see that very uh, as very much a goal of, the, uh, of Operation Condor to track down these very important high-profile leaders in Europe or in the United States and get rid of them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So it's obviously hard to tell because of the fact that they did quite literally use disappearance techniques in some of these situations, but is there um, an official number on the amount of deaths or assassinations or um, any of that? Is there some number out there?
1: Sure. Um, The specifically in operation condor uh, I didn't have a number when I wrote the book that I think you have, because that was the book Mm -hmm. that was, Published in 2004. But yeah. I, I've written a second book on Operation Condor that was published in 2021. In, um, in So far, it's not out in English. It, it was published in Spanish. And I, I compiled a database of all the victims of Operation Condor. So the number uh, is 640 uh, victims of Operation Condor, um, and of them, the, um, uh, the there were very few survivors. Uh, but the uh, I think uh, I think in addition to the 640, there were about there were there were 200 people who were um, who were detained or uh, rounded up in these international operations. Um, but um, they were not killed in all cases, and and people, some people survived. We don't know how many survivors there are, because generally those cases are not publicized, even by the human rights organizations. Uh, so uh, I've come up with like 250 people that were either targeted or rounded up in these Condor operations. <clears throat> um and and we're not killed, but uh, about 600 were killed. I have, the the, my database is very, very precise. Uh, At this Mm. point, it doesn't change very often. Uh, Occasionally, um, I I come across a new case, but um, at this point, the only new cases are where I discover somebody who was arrested and was then expelled from a country or something, and that was a Condor case. Now, this is in the context of a much larger phenomenon of killings by the countries against their own citizens. So in Chile, the Chilean government killed and disappeared 3,196, I think is the number, um, wow, and in Argentina, the number is nine thousand people who were killed, uh, and and disappeared. Um, Uruguay, it's a very ironic case in Uruguay. Uruguay is where the famous Tupamaros guerrilla uh, organization was very successful for several years. They were then defeated and thousands of these guerrilla fighters were put in jail, but they weren't killed. Uruguay did not kill its prisoners. They used torture, um, but they didn't kill them in Uruguay for the most part. Um, But in Argentina, Operation Condor was rounding up Uruguayans Uruguayans, and killing them. So Mm -hmm. there were more Uruguayans killed in Argentina then were killed in Uruguay itself.
0: Man, first off, just rest in peace to all of those people who had that horrible, horrible fate. You know, that's so, that's so sad. And um, it, it's terrible to see what power does to people in those situations and what people are truly capable of.
1: Well, let me just, I'm glad you, said that because um i don't like to talk about this just in terms of the statistics or the activities of the military as terrible as they are i like to focus in my in my books particularly my new book that is coming out on the human stories of the people that that went through this right Uh, it's it's excruciating because i write about these really wonderful people um and I know that as I'm doing profiles of these people and talking about what they were doing in their political activities, uh, in many cases their families, their girlfriends, and I know that none of my stories will have a happy ending. Uh, they always end up with somebody uh, being captured and killed. Yeah. So it's um, it's 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 one of the, it's it's tough to yeah. to write about all these things all the time. Absolutely.
0: But yeah, at the same time, you're spreading the news. You're getting the story out there of people whose story may not have been shared otherwise. And, um, to a certain extent, maybe helping some of these people get justice.
1: Hopefully that's my goal. And, um, it's certainly I've dedicated my life to it. So I, I do feel it's, it's worthwhile. Um, and, it makes a difference. and the the reason that it makes a difference is that you can't read the stories of these people and and what they did uh, without being affected uh, by the by the crime that was committed against them. And it makes people think in ways that are important because, the politics is overlaid on the criminal activity. Mm. Uh, The people for the most part that were killed were militants on the side of the left. In some cases, in many cases, they were Marxists. In some cases, they were involved in violent activity, not the majority of cases by any means, but definitely there were people who were real guerrilla fighters, uh, who were caught up in this and killed, uh, and so you have to, you have to think that that human rights crimes are not just against so-called innocent people, and by innocent I I mean people that were not involved in anything. These people were committed to a cause, almost one hundred percent. Occasionally, there would be somebody who would be uninvolved, but was caught up and killed because of association with somebody else. Mm -hmm. That certainly happened in in many cases. But for the most part, you look into the lives of the people that um, were the victims, these 600 and some people, and you see that these are people who knew the risk, knew that they were doing something dangerous, and they continued doing it because of their devotion to the cause um the cause either of uh social justice Mm -hmm. or human rights most of these people were revolutionaries uh they they really hoped that they could solve the problems of poverty and injustice through revolutionary change in other words similar to what allende tried to do in argent in chile um those mm-hmm. were the goal the same goals of these people that were the victims of operation condor and of the repression right
0: yeah so so how long how long does operation condor go on before it officially um, hits its end
1: it uh was the the period of operation condor goes from the military coup in chile um and it is Pretty much completely petered out by the time ten years later, when the Argentine government collapses, the military government collapses, um, and democracy is restored in uh, in Argentina, in Chile. So the 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 international cooperation among these countries is at an end uh, by mm. that point. Uh, there are some examples where the military in the various countries who had participated in the alliance earlier. Later on, they revive these connections they had in the past, and they do some isolated uh, criminal activities. Um, but uh, as a official policy, Operation Condor is over by 1983.
0: Okay, so 1983, and then was um Pinochet still in power at the time or Yes. Pinochet Pinochet
1: Pinoche was in power until 1990 um and the story of his uh stepping down from the presidency is a, is really a good story as far as the United States is concerned. We were we were quite important in putting pressure on Pinochet to have a legitimate uh, plebiscite and respect the results. So Pinochet had written a constitution that called for a plebiscite. um, And the terms of the plebiscite were, uh, should I stay in power for eight more years? uh, Or should we have an election? Um, Plebiscites are almost always won by the dictatorship that puts them out, right? Because people Mm. don't dare to vote against what the dictatorship says. But for a variety of reasons, including the support of the United States, the opposition in Chile was able to get organized, was able to get enough publicity, uh, access to even access to TV to a certain extent, um, and to gather a movement in favor of returning to democracy rather than giving Pinochet eight more years um, as president. And so the, it was the, called the campaign of no. Uh, the, in order to restore democracy, you had to vote no in the plebiscite against Pinochet taking staying in power for eight more years. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the no won. Um uh, uh so they were able to hold free elections uh, in 1990 and um, uh, and a new a new government came in and that government has has been in successfully running the country um, since 1990. Uh, the country was uh, the most prosperous in Latin America for most of the 90s and part of the 2000s. Uh, its democracy has been um, unquestioned. Uh, most recently there was, uh, I mean, you might be aware of the new president. It's been uninterrupted elections, peaceful turnover of power. There's been right-wing governments, there's been left-wing governments, there's been centrist governments. The most recent government, is headed by President Boric, who is 36 years old. Uh, and he comes out of a student movement and a, a protest movement uh, that started in uh, the student movement, can in uh, like 2015, and the protest movement in 2019 actually uh, was nationwide um, and was very... It was so influential that the government promised that they would rewrite the Constitution um, in order to continue the process of change. And that Constitution is still being rewritten hmm. um, now. It'll be it'll probably be finished by the end of the year.
0: Hmm. Well, that's kind of a beautiful story, then. Um, it's hard. It's hard to see those through those dark times, those really bad times where um some very just terrible things are going on, but uh, sometimes it takes kind of the dark times to be able to bring back the light, you know, to be able to plant that seed and see new birth, new growth, new change, like the Chilean government has seen.
1: Well, you're, you're looking at the, the optimistic side of this. uh, And it's, it's true. I mean, I'm glad that I was able to ultimately write a story that has had a um, a positive and happy happy ending for many many people, um, and the country is is doing well. Uh, I have many many friends. My son lives in Chile. Um, my new granddaughter is is now starting to grow up in in that country, and I go down at least a couple times a year. So. Um, it's uh, it's very important to me, and um, uh, you know, like every country, it has many many problems, mm-hmm. um, but it's solving them using democratic methods, um, and that's coming out of a tremendous dark period. I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't want to put it as you have to go through a dark period in order to come out into the light because I don't want anybody to have to go through what the Chilean people did.
0: Right. For no those 17 years. No, no. Um, yeah. And I, I, guess I was just meaning more generally, sometimes you have to go through challenges and changes. Right. And um, unfortunately during some of those challenging changes, you can enter some very dark periods, but uh, John, I'm fascinated by your work. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story um and all of this history with everybody that's gonna hear this podcast. Um, are there any other key points you'd like to make or any key key facts, information that you'd like to throw out there about Operation Condor?
1: You know, I I think you covered them all. I mean, we've I can't think of any of my favorite stories that uh, <laughs> I haven't had an opportunity to to tell you about. Um my my I'm coming out with a book uh probably in the next year about the story of the two Americans who were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that comes out, uh, there's a lot of new revelations in that. Uh, this, You know, the, you talk about the untold story, and this is a story that was a Hollywood movie. Uh, and people think they know what happened. And when I tell the story of what really happened, it should be uh, eye-opening to many people this study, mm. i hope so that's going to be coming yeah. out in the next year
0: well i'm looking forward to it um do you have any social media or anything you'd like to share any what just any social media links or a website or any anything oh, anywhere anybody sure. can go to get into your books or
1: uh well on twitter i'm uh i'm fairly active um uh, at John, at J. Dingus. But if you just put in John Dingus, I show up on Twitter. Um, I also have a Twitter account for Condor Years, uh, so you can find where I post things there. Um, and um, yeah, I, I'm not very. Um, I have. I'm not very active on Facebook, but I have a um, a website. Archivos. It's uh, it's in Spanish. Uh, <laughs> Archivos Chile. Uh, dot.com. Maybe you can put it up on in writing, um, and it, we also have a a mirror site, which is thecondoryears.com. So that would be easier for English language people to find. Uh, so there, I I post my findings. Uh, the uh, the database that I talked about is on the website. Um, and um, whenever I do a story I mean I do I do stories in magazines or newspapers from time to time and I always put my new stories in the um, in that account I also have a personal account JohnDingus.com so you can find but that's just my that's basically my (laughs) biography and things like that so thanks for asking that's always good I don't raise money for my stuff so um that's uh, that's not a factor but uh uh but I do try to I try to make everything that I do public um and I try to do it in a way that everybody can see the evidence uh that I used to draw my conclusions so you don't have to I mean I, I want people yes I want people to believe me but I don't want them to think that it's just my personal uh, credibility. Uh, you can actually go on into all of my books, into all of my writing, and you can see exactly what I base my conclusions on hmm. all the documents. And in many cases you can actually get access to those documents.
0: That's awesome. That's, that's really cool. Cause a lot of people don't do that. They don't share all of their documents and information. So uh, appreciate you doing that. I appreciate you shedding light on this entire topic, this entire situation and all of, all of the work you've done. And uh, John Dingus, everybody, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been good to be with you and uh, good luck with your podcast.